The future is shaped by technology, by the advances we make here and in space. What new technologies are being developed at NASA? How will demonstrating these technologies help us learn more about our universe? And is the co-host a technological liability? Find out on NASA Edge. Now, John, I understand that you're the program manager for TDM, or Technology Demonstration Missions. Tell me a little bit about what TDMs are. Within NASA, they want to use technologies that are proven and demonstrated because these missions are generally very expensive. So within the Technology Demonstration Mission, what we would like to do is to demonstrate new and revolutionary technologies in a lower cost, simpler mission where we could accept more risk to enable these technologies to be infused in these more expensive missions. So we look at other spacecraft and we see if there are environments where we could put our demonstrations on those other missions. One approach that we could have is called ride sharing where we would launch on somebody else's rocket with other spacecraft. So there may be multiple spacecraft on the same rocket. We look at particular commercial space communication satellites is a good example where they're already going to a particular point in space. We put the payload on their satellite and we wow. ride along with them. And then another approach would be such as in the case of Medley where we put experimental sensors on the heat shield of Mars Science Lab and fly into the planet with that and take the data as we're entering the atmosphere. There are how many TDMs? To like nine? There are nine technology demonstration missions in our portfolio right now. Thinking of your broad TDM schedule, what would be the best three missions for us to cover in our first episode? Well, the ones I to talk about now would probably, I think, would be the LCRD, the Laser Communication Relay Demonstration, the Human Exploration Telerobotics, and Medley. Medley is the heat shield technology uh, deal, uh, kind of like Captain America's shield. Well, it's, it's actually uh, some thermal and pressure sensors that flew in on the Mars Science Lab Aral shell. It's currently in the investigation and analysis phase. Well, if you want to get technical, but yes, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's technology, so we <laughs> do get technical. I've always wanted to be a part of an investigation. Do you, do you think I could maybe uh, be the lead investigator for Medley uh, as a new technology? So you think you can lead an investigation? Yeah, seriously, I'm on it. John, are you sure this is a good idea? They can handle the pressure. Oh, he'll bring his A game. Well, at least his B game. Well, we got to cover the first three TDMs, so we better go. Yeah, Terry Fong is waiting for us over at Ames. Okay. So, Terry, give me the telerobotics big picture as it relates to uh, human exploration and working alongside with robots. Sure. Telerobotics project is all about how do you take remotely operated robots and use them to improve the way that humans live and work in space. Uh, under Telerobotics, you have quite a few projects that you're working with. And the last time that I met you, we were in Moses Lake in Washington State, and you were working with K-10. Yep. Tell us a little bit about where that has been since then. The K-10 rover project is something we've been doing for about seven years now. Mm -hmm. Back when we were at Moses Lake, we were trying to look at how to use robots like K-10 to do scouting, you know, work ahead of a human mission surface level reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. Since then, we've also looked at the flip side as you know, how to use robots to follow up after humans. So we did some testing up in the Canadian Arctic a couple years ago where we did a human mission and then did a robotic mission following after that. 
So this whole theme of robots working before, robots working after, and now what we're doing in the Tell Robotics Project is looking at sort of the middle ground. Robots working side by side, or in support, or in parallel. This coming summer, we're gonna be doing an interesting test where we have astronauts on the space station control the K-10 robot here in this planetary analog environment. To do that, we're going to finish transforming this space into a small-scale replica of portions of the moon. Because the mission we're trying to simulate in our testing is a possible future mission to the far side of the moon, where we use a robot like K-10, or a future version of K-10, to deploy a lunar telescope. And so to simulate that mission, we've created this large space here that we're going to use as part of our testing. Another project that falls under telerobotics is R2. Yeah. How is R2 right now being used on the ISS? Well, you know, R2 is a dexterous humanoid robot. And so we're trying to get it to work with tools that astronauts use. We're trying to get it to do things that require manipulating with your hands, or with your arms. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's really all about trying to do the work that's unproductive for astronauts to spend their time doing. Can we see R2 soon look something like C-3PO with legs? Um, funny you should ask. Actually, over the next year or so, one of the things we're really looking forward to is making the current version of R2 mobile. You know, on Space Station right now, R2 is a bit on a pedestal. Right. It's in one location, and we're actually learning a lot about how to operate a two-armed dexterous robot in space. Mm -hmm. But during the next year, we're actually going to be sending up a pair of legs. And this will allow it to basically be self-mobile. It can literally climb around inside Space Station, get from point A to point B. Just like an astronaut. Just like an astronaut. Are we making science fiction reality? I think in a lot of ways we are. You know, a lot of our inspiration for the things that we do at NASA comes from science fiction. Uh, whether it's in print or the movies, there were a lot of really great concepts out there that back in the day, maybe you didn't have the technology to actually make those real. But now we do. And now we have the opportunity to try to see how does it work. And that's really part of what we're trying to do is to take those ideas and concepts, be it from science fiction or elsewhere, and make those real. Interestingly, the lightsaber trainer droid was a source of inspiration for three different free flyer projects that NASA and MIT have worked on in the past, uh, and Spheres is actually one of those. So what's SmartSphere all about? So SmartSphere is all about taking the existing Spheres platforms that we have on station and expanding their capabilities. We're very interested in seeing how we can use robotics to help astronauts and ground controllers do their daily tasks and act as an assistant to them and allow them to provide eyes, ears, and other sensors in areas of station that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. I'm looking at this sphere next to you, and the first thing I notice is the cell phone. It's a Samsung Nexus S phone. It's the same phone that you can buy in any store. Okay. We then modified it for flight, so you have to make modifications to it to fly on ISS. We also went through and modified the software and the operating system that runs up underneath the hood, and it ends up being a really, really great resource for us. It's humbling to say that NASA cannot even outrun the advancements right now that are happening in the cell phone industry. So if you gave me the cell phone number for that phone, I can call it right now on station? Actually, all of the cell phone capabilities uh, have been disabled. So okay. much like you have to put your phone into airplane mode when you are on an airplane, uh, we have to disable all of the cell phone capabilities when it's on ISS. 
to give us kind of a breakdown of what's inside that sphere. Sure. So the sphere internally has liquid CO2 tanks. It's the same kind of tanks that you would use like on a paintball gun. That liquid CO2 then comes up through this regulator that's on the top of it that takes it from high pressure to low pressure. Okay. That The low pressure gas then gets passed through tubes that are on the inside and they come out to these little thrusters. So there's two of these little silver thrusters on each of the faces and each of those thrusters has a solenoid in it. So it's like an electromagnet that the computer can tell it whether it needs to have gas coming out of it or not. Okay. And so it uses liquid CO2 to move itself through station. It also has these little ultrasonic beacons, and what the ultrasonics do is they help the sphere know where it is. So if you tell the sphere to go from point A to point B, it needs to know that it's at point A before it can figure out how to get to point B. And then inside of it, there's of course a computer that's doing all of the math that's involved in figuring out which combinations of thrusters it needs to fire okay. to make it go from point A to point B. Can you control that through a joystick? Uh, or is that autonomous, or is it controlled by astronauts, or ground control? All of the above. All the so above. the Spheres was originally designed to be a canned experiment. So the programmer would set up the flight path that he wanted the Sphere to fly. That would be uploaded to the Sphere. Crew would load that onto the Sphere. Crew would say go, and then the Sphere would begin flying around. Part of what the Smart Spheres project is doing is trying to extend that so that ground controllers are able to establish the path and do all of the programming from the ground. Do you maybe see it working on the outside of the International Space Station to help out astronauts? Absolutely. The idea that we have robots helping us in all of the situations in which we're doing space science just seems natural. We live in a world today where we have Roombas that are vacuuming our floors and we have autonomous cars that are right. being created that will drive us eventually. The idea that we have astronauts working and interacting with robots that are helping them with their everyday tasks is very important to ISS or any of the future missions that we're working on. that you've been given the responsibility of being the lead investigator on this mission. Uh, absolutely. I've got all kinds of data here, some information documents, so I should be good to go. You have 24 hours. Okay. All right. Let's get busy here. Mike, tell us, what is LCRD all about? Laser Communication Relay Demonstration, a uh, demonstration of Earth-to-geo, real-time optical communication. So right now we're pretty much communicating, understanding RF frequency? Right, that's really where we're at today, but we're quickly reaching the limits of what we can do with radio frequency transmissions. And as you know, NASA has some pretty bold plans to go farther and transmit a whole lot more data. So we really need a new architecture, a new way of communicating. We're going to need things that can transmit at faster rates, that are more efficient at collecting that data. You know, imagine if we could make humongous trades for mass and power and not have to spend those kinds of resources on essentially communication systems. So with laser communications, you can send more information over, over a wider bandwidth, or how does that work? It's basically about a 10 to 100 times increase in the amount of data wow. 
and the speed of data. When you look at these radar dishes, when we look at laser, we're not even looking at a dish, are we? You're looking at something that transmits a laser beam, basically a telescope, and something okay. that collects that beam, either another telescope or some type of photon collector or detector. So when you send a signal from Mars, you send it from the moon, from a spacecraft, it kind of goes over a wide area. But with laser, it's going to be sort of at a narrow angle. Right, it's a narrow beam, so you need a whole lot less power. Since it's going to be a narrow beam, it could be harder to pick up in terms of collecting that information down on Earth? Well, it's definitely difficult to pick up, so a lot of technology development has gone into what we call pointing and tracking. We've definitely worked on that. We know how to do it, okay. so we've solved that problem. Now it's just a matter of hitting the other things that are a little bit different with optical communication, such as the Earth's atmosphere. Right. I was just going to say, what happens if it's a cloudy day or if there's a, you know, a storm you know, passing over the relay station? Well, there's two ways to solve that problem. One is get rid of the atmosphere. I don't think that one's going to work. Right, right, right. The other one is to deal with the atmosphere. Okay. So you can put your receivers in places where you know that you have very little effects due to atmosphere. The other is to correct for what the atmosphere does to these signals, such as adaptive optics. You know, we have that technology now, and we're just going to go apply it to these laser transmissions. Now, in, in looking at LCRD, there's another mission coming up shortly that's LLCD, or mm. Lunar Laser Communication Demonstration. Is that a precursor to LCRD? It is. Lunar LaserCom is going to be a demo of a laser transmission from the moon. I'll give you an example, LRO, huge amount of data, digital map of the moon, right. highly successful mission. That was transmitted at 150 megabits a second. Okay. The Lunar Laser Com is going to transmit at 622 megabits a second, oh, wow. four to five times increase in speed. From that, we're going to go demonstrate on LCRD a full network. So we're going to have two types of modulations. One's going to be a little bit faster, slightly faster than what we can do with today's RF. But it's not so much about the speed. It's really demonstrating that relay capability. Nobody has ever done that before. Okay. And that's what LCRD is all about. It's the optical equivalent to what we do with the TDRS system today. In theory, and your hope one day is that TDRS will be replaced with this laser optical system. Yeah, probably not right away. It'll probably be a combination of radio frequency okay. and optical. But eventually, once we prove all these technologies and make some improvements on other things like disruptive tolerant networking and onboard processing. The hope is someday that we will just totally use optical systems. Imagine if we're on the moon and we're sending real-time data back along with high-definition television, right. along with engineering data, along with spacecraft telemetry. I mean, we are talking huge, huge data volumes. Right. And if we're gonna get there, we need different communication systems because today's are just not gonna get us there.
Thanks, Michelle, for coming this morning to this uh, investigative part of our review. It's very important that we understand all the aspects, phases, and success of Melody. Medley. Yeah, Medley. Good. Okay. Could you please explain for me the technology behind Medley? A medley is a series of pressure measurements and temperature measurements that we made on the heat shield of the Mars Science Laboratory as it was going down to the surface of Mars. So on August 5th or 6th, depending on what time zone you were in. Excuse me, what time zone were you in? I was actually in the eastern time zone. Okay, very good, eastern time zone, very good. So for us, it landed at 1.31 a.m. We measured the pressure and temperature on the heat shield as the landing was occurring. And that was to give us more information to validate our models so that we can better design the next Mars lander. So you were gathering data during the MSL mission. Yes. Uh, explain a little more clearly what that data was. Well, we had seven pressure measurements. And so from before we entered the atmosphere, up until a few seconds after the parachute deployed, we were reading the pressure on the front of the capsule eight times a second. This is a section of the aeroshell structure, and it would have the thermal protection system material on the front of it. And we drilled a hole through that material, and the pressure was sensed through that hole, through this tube, and into the transducer. And then the signal came out through an electrical harness and was collected by our electronics box, which was also mounted inside the aeroshell. And these are not the actual hardware units that were used during the mission, correct? No, those are now on the surface of Mars. On Mars, very good. Awesome. Now, in your professional opinion, uh, and let me re remind you, you're under oath, um, was that a success? It was a great success. You want to see the data? Absolutely. So here is our Meads pressure data. And here is a figure of the front of the heat shield, and the coloring denotes the pressure. So we have the highest pressure down here in what we call the stagnation region, and then lower pressures towards the outside of the heat shield. Remember that it's 4.5 meters in diameter, so it's fairly big. Yep. And it's flying a little bit nose up at an angle of attack so it can steer itself down to the landing site, which is why it landed so precisely near Mount Sharp. That's a unique feature of steering itself. That, that's a... It is. This is the first time we've done that at Mars. Uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. It was awesome. Awesome. Very so good. here the white dots show our seven locations of our pressure ports. The first thing we notice about this data is that it's incredibly clean. There's no noise on it. There's no dropouts. It's beautiful. We were really happy with it. No failure on any of the instruments during the process? Nope. It was all beautiful. And so from this, our team has been reconstructing the trajectory for the past three months. And they show that our predictions of how the vehicle was going to fly were pretty much right on. So it's all really good news. One more question here. Uh, did you or anyone on your team experience all seven minutes of terror? We definitely did. Any associated health problems as a result, or is everyone okay at this point? Definitely. Very good. We were all elated at the end. Elated. Okay, very good. Well, I believe this concludes the investigative part of our review. I'm sorry, Michelle. We have a few questions. 
What percentage of the heat shield was degraded during entry into the Martian atmosphere, and how happy are you with the data? That's a really good question. Um, we're still analyzing the extent of the degradation of the heat shield. So our thermal plug uh, right here called MISP is what measured the temperature as it soaked through the material. And we also had a sensor that measured the char depth or how much it burned. And right now we're showing that it charred about 0.3 inches down into the heat shield. And it actually did not recess or completely burn away at all. We designed margin into the material so that we still had plenty of material left and we were nowhere near um, endangering the spacecraft at any time. During descent, you could actually see the heat shield fall away. What was going through your mind at that time? And did you stop the video to analyze the heat shield? Oh yes, we've definitely used the Marty camera images over and over again. It's such a high resolution camera, especially in the first few frames when the heat shield is falling away. You can almost read the serial numbers on the medley transducers and you can see all the harnessing as it's laid into the heat shield. But actually our team members out at JPL are using it to measure how the heat shield flew down to see if there were any wind effects on it and what its aerodynamics were. It was really interesting to us that it just fell straight down and it never flipped or turned on its side or anything, so that camera data is useful in many ways. I'm, I'm going to need to see the serial numbers from the... Okay, okay I'm gonna we need have those. those. Thank you. Michelle, are you still in contact with the Medley team? Yes, I am. We're going to need you to reassemble that team. Blair, please hand her file 1138. Can we count on you? Absolutely. Melody? Dude. I'm not sure you actually formed the question. Well, a number of your questions were either irrelevant or nonsensical. You brought your seat game. I just was uh, gonna do an investigation. I thought, I thought it'd be funny to ask some serious questions and try to get behind the program. I, I didn't know there were rules and I didn't know this would be used against me. Somehow this stuff seems unconstitutional. I mean, you want an investigation, I do an investigation. The few uh, if, when, and why kind of questions. I, I didn't stress anybody, I wasn't pressuring anybody, I wasn't insulting, well, maybe I was a little insulting, but who doesn't get a little insulting when you're doing an interview or at least trying to act? And I haven't been to acting school, so I don't know what acting is. I just kind of show up and do what I think is natural. And maybe that's wrong, but I can't help that. That's who I am. I'll never ask another question as long as I live, no matter what. I, I... Okay, I think I have a better idea now of exactly what they're looking for when they want to conduct an investigation of a TDM. So next time, I think I know better how I can prepare. Should be a much more rigorous investigation.